Well, welcome again to Sedaris. We are starting a new series tonight in the book of Psalms. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, would you grab it and open to Psalm chapter 1? We're going to be looking at the very first psalm today. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you, or feel free to Google Psalm 1 on your phone. If you're not familiar with where the psalms are, just open pretty much to the center of your Bible, look around a little bit, and you'll find the psalms right there. I don't think it's actually a coincidence that it's right in the heart of the scriptures, the psalms. I think we'll see today God's got a plan for everything. So, so glad that you're here, so glad that you've chosen uh, to worship with us tonight, to consider with us tonight, and I'm so excited about this new series as we consider the Psalms together. No matter where you are in your faith journey, um, considering is always worthy of celebration. So celebrate you, thank you for coming and considering the things of God today. So the other thing that, uh, besides the Psalms that we're going to talk about today is trees, right? I mean, if you follow us on Instagram, I took a picture of a great tree in the heart of Wallingford. And when you start to look around and you see the trees, you realize what an amazing thing a tree is. And so I'll just share with you very quickly my favorite tree story. When I was in college, I became friends with uh, a gal who was from Arkansas. And she invited me to go be a part of this camp in Arkansas called Camp Ozark. Has anyone heard of Camp Ozark? Praise be to God. Camp Ozark is a great spot. And there is this uh, ridge uh, right sort of at the base of the camp. And it's, it's kind of on a cliff. And it looks out over the Ozarks, which is this huge forest. Beautiful. I mean, I don't know if you've been to Arkansas, but it's actually a beautiful state. Uh, some of us might not think of Arkansas as beautiful, but it is. It's actually called the natural state. And it's beautiful. And so I'm looking out over uh, this vast forest. And, um, and I actually was looking out over it uh, in this particular time during a thunderstorm. And, and I know a couple of folks here are from the south, but like we don't have real thunderstorms up here in Seattle. We, we have like the hose set on mist setting. You know, that's all we get. But down there, I mean, it is a real thunderstorm. And so I'm looking out over this vast uh, forest and it's the most amazing thunderstorm that I've ever seen. And it's just bolts of lightning going all the way, boom, boom, boom. And it's quite windy and probably a little dangerous. And then all of a sudden, boom, lightning strikes, hits the tree right next to me, huge tree and this giant branch falls and hits the ground, doesn't hit me. And I'm just like, wow. The power of God and the beauty of trees, all in this perfect moment at Camp Ozark. Should really send your kids there. <laughs> okay. Beautiful place. That's my favorite tree story. But I, I do love trees. I've always been fascinated with trees. And, and a while back, I can't even remember when it was, I bought this ta- a coffee table book called Trees. And it's just beautiful pictures of trees. And um, I went to, to look for it because, as we'll see in the psalm, a tree is an important uh, picture here. And uh, it was hidden away in a drawer, and it's been there for years. I don't know why we 
amazing coffee table book. It could have be because we have a two-year-old and we didn't want the book to be ruined. But I was looking through it, reading through it, and I, I saw this great quote. I'll share it with you. It says this. The wonder is that when we see these trees, the wonder is that we do not wonder more. And I, I really like that quote because when you actually stop and look at a, at a tree and, and think about what it is and think about how long it's been there, it should make us wonder a lot more. And so today we're going to talk about the Psalms and we're going to talk about trees and it's going to be amazing. And if I'm honest, in the same way that I don't wonder enough about trees, I honestly don't wonder enough in the Psalms. The Psalms are incredible. They are the most marvelous, wondrous, incomparable, the most awesome poetry and song that has ever been written, and too often I neglect it. Not often enough do I wonder in the Psalms and let it fill my soul and stir my emotions for God and move me to mission. So I thought, maybe I'm not alone in this. Maybe you too have not so often wondered in the Psalms. So I thought, well, let's just do that together. Let's just reclaim the wonder of the Psalms together as a church. And you know what? I don't like to make too many promises. We're still too young as a church. But what if we did this every summer? What if we spent the summer in the Psalms? Maybe we'll do that. Because I think we need to figure out a way to reclaim the Psalms for our lives as individuals and for our lives as a church community. So let's reclaim these God-breathed collection of 150 poems of the people of God. For thousands of years, they've been sung aloud, recited aloud by the Hebrew people. They've inspired generation after generation of Jewish boys and girls to know how to communicate with Yahweh, the one true God. They were written by prophets, poets, reflecting upon life with God. And they were written between the time of King David and the exile to Babylon. They were collected and organized by spirit-led scribes who put them together so that all peoples at all times might have access to these God-breathed prayers. That's what the Psalms are. And God's people have memorized them and used them, including Jesus himself, to be the vital connecting point for hurting, praising, suffering, joyful, confused considerers. So that's what I want us to do. I want us to get in line and do that. We've got to reclaim the Psalms if we want to learn to pray, learn to live, learn to connect with God. So let me just give you a little bit more background information on the Psalms, just so you can kind of get up to speed and understand why it is we want to spend time looking at them. The Psalms are a collection by many authors, but King David was, was really the master psalmist. He didn't write all the Psalms. In fact, the writing of the Psalms spans hundreds of years. 
But he is sort of the one we look to as the grandmaster of psalm writing. He was an incredible man of God. Jesus also, as we'll see tonight, loved the psalms. He meditated on the psalms. He absorbed the psalms. He leaned on the psalms throughout his 36 years or so of life on earth. Christians from every generation have used the psalms as their primary text for learning to pray, to actually praying, to writing songs, to learn to worship. And as we'll see in the psalms, and probably most clearly in the psalms of David, the psalms, one of their uniqueness is that they are always rooted in real life experience. So they really are a first-hand account of what it's like to be in communion with God, to live the ups and the downs of life with God. And that's why, as we'll see, and if you read the Psalms, you'll find that they are raw and unfiltered. They are free from sentimentalism. That's what I love about the Psalms. So much of the church's religious poetry over the last couple thousand years is filled with sentimentalism. Not the Psalms. When you read the Psalms, they are raw, they are unfiltered, and they are based on real life experience. Now having said that, each Psalm, though it is a reflection on real experience, it's very rare that we can with absolute certainty know of that experience. It's it's very rare that we can connect the actual Psalm with with certainty, the actual experience. But, of course, that doesn't mean that we might not try. We might not make an informed guess. Because I think it's helpful to realize that it's in real life experience that we learn to cry out to God. We don't have to become perfected in order to speak to God. We don't have to be free from danger or free from the moment to learn to cry out to God. So we'll do that. We'll try to see, is, is there an experience that might be connected or help us to understand what's going on? But again, this is also the beauty of the psalm. When we try to do that, what we will realize is that the psalms are for us. They are for everyone at all times. And so we'll find a little bit of ourselves in the psalms. Maybe we're having an experience in which the Psalms become the words that we can pray because they are related to us. So King David, he was a shepherd. He was an aide to the royal court of Saul. He was an outlaw. He was a king. He was a poet. He was a musician. He was a warrior. He was a saint. He was all of these things. And he is all of these things in the Psalms that he has written. And the reason that I bring that up is because each of us is maybe one or two of those things. And so it's, it's, it's such an important reminder to realize that King David and all the other psalmists, they are not somehow beyond us. They are living all types of experiences And they are learning to connect with God through each and every one of those. And that is why these psalms 
are meant for us, that God has given them to us, that they can become our consolation in times of sorrow, in, in wide, widely differentiating external circumstances, they become for us refuge. They become the best expressions of our feelings when we don't even have the words to express. So all this is to say that as you read these psalms, you will encounter things that you might have never thought you'd find in the Bible. You, you might encounter psalms that just surprise you. This is in the Bible. We're allowed to say this to God. God has allowed this to be recorded. And the answer is yes. All of it is from God. Through the writing of human hands. And it's such a good reminder because what we'll see in the Psalms is that when man honestly cries out to God, God receives that as holy. Even if the cry is, is why God? Even if the cry is, how could you? Even if the cry is, I hate my enemies, God. If his children cry to him honestly, God receives that as holy. And we have proof of that in the Psalms because he's made sure these Psalms are recorded for us. This is the word of God. So let that be a reassurance to you that if your cries to God are honest, that they are totally and completely appropriate. So I hope you see yourself in the Psalms. I hope maybe you see a friend that's going through something in the Psalms. Maybe the Psalms can be a refuge for them as well. They are this perfect combination, perhaps unlike anything else, of the humanity and the divinity of the Word of God. So these Psalms, carefully considered, they will help us to see all things through the light of God. This is important to understand. The Psalms, carefully considered, will help us to see all things in the light of God. And in the Psalms, we get to watch people struggle with enemies, with all distresses, with all persecutions, with all sins, with all victories, with all pleasures, in the light of God. We get to see how to let God be involved in all of life. And so in these 150 Hebrew poems, I think if we pay attention, we'll learn how to pray, we'll learn how to live, we'll learn how to walk through life with God by our side. That's, that's sort of the grand hope of this series. And every time we come to the Psalms, to learn to live life with God by our side at every moment. Which brings us to Psalm chapter 1, the very first psalm. And it, it's, it, it, it itself is not actually a psalm. Interesting. It is actually more like a proverb. I'll, I'll explain to you what's going on here and, and why the very first psalm is not actually a song or a poem. 
The reason is it's because it's more like an introduction or a preface to the entire book. Now, many authors will do this. They'll write a book and then they'll come back at the very end and write the introduction because they want to make sure that the introduction actually introduces what the book is about. And sometimes you don't know that until you've written the book. And God in his providence has organized the Psalms in, in the same way, that Psalm 1 is something of an introduction or a preface to the entire Psalms. Or you could think about it a little bit like this, like a movie trailer. Okay? A movie trailer cannot be made until the rest of the movie is made, and then they pick highlights and they throw them together. But, but this is actually important for you guys to know. I do not like movie trailers. Don't send them to me. My wife, Allie, she loves to watch the movie trailer before we go to the movie. I do not like this because I feel like it gives away the whole movie. Am I the only one that struggles with this? Like, okay, turn around. We don't need to go to this movie anymore. I pretty much know what it's about. Psalm 1 is not like that. Psalm 1 is not going to give it away. You can't just read Psalm 1 and, and turn around and say, like, well, I pretty much got the gist of the rest all 149. It's not going to do that. But it is going to tell us something very, very, very important about the rest of the Psalms that you might miss if you didn't read Psalm 1. Remember I said that it's a proverb about life. It's a proverb about life. And we'll read it here in a second so you see what I'm saying. It's a proverb about life, which is interesting, right? Because I thought the Psalms were about prayer. So why would the introduction to a book about prayers start with a proverb about life? Well, the answer is this, and we must see this in the Psalms, is that prayer is life and life is prayer. This is the logic of godly living. Prayer, as we think of it, is actually just a microcosm of life. So microcosm is just a snapshot. It's like life shrunk down into just a few minutes. And so when we stop to pray, we are doing life in a microcosm. But that also means, and I purposely said real life, because there's a way of doing life that is full, life as it was intended to be. This is a life that is fully lived in the consciousness of God's presence, of God's goodness, of God's character, of God's way, of God's rules, of his law, of his sovereignty, of his perfect plan. That is real life. And prayer becomes just a microcosm of that real life. It is five, 10, 20 minutes we spend praying as we are trying to be fully conscious of God's presence, that he's right next to us, that he's in it with us, that he has a way he wants us to go. So prayer is a microcosm of life, which means that if it's just a microcosm, that there must be a larger thing, which is life itself. Therefore, life itself you could think of as an extended prayer. At least it should be. But if we're really honest, if I'm really honest with you, it seems to me like when, when I think of my prayer life, this microcosm, I'm not even good at the microcosm. Any and everything can get in the way of my praying. A phone call, an email, checking my Instagram, the third season of Ray Donovan. 
If, if I struggle with the microcosm, which is prayer, how do I expect to do the full deal right, which is life? You see the struggle here? So you could say, to live is to pray, to pray is to live, but which comes first? When I struggle with both, which informs the other? How do I start praying when I don't know how to live? How do I start living when I don't know how to pray? What do I do when I can't get solid footing in either realm? Here's the answer. This is a great answer. The Psalms. The Psalms. The Psalms solve both problems at the same time. And this is what Psalm 1 will tell us. It is introducing this revelation to us that prayer and life are inseparable, that they are rooted in each other. And the Psalms will teach us how to pray and how to live. So if you're struggling to pray, pray and live the Psalms. If you're struggling to live, live and pray the Psalms. The Psalms themselves become the Grand Master. And they teach us. They teach us. They teach us. They teach us how to live and how to pray. I'm going to show you two books here. I'm going to put these on the back table and the connect table in the back. Maybe you want to start learning from the Grand Master, which is the Psalms. And you want to learn how to pray through the Psalms. You want to learn how to let the Psalms teach you. I've got both of these books. These are my copies. Do not steal them. There are books on the back that you can take. Do not take these. Um, This is a book by Tim Keller called The Songs of Jesus. It's got a psalm for uh, and a little bit of a commentary. The same is true of this. This is uh, called the ESV psalm. uh, What is it called? trying to get, well, you can look it up if you want to. It's the ESV devotional Psalter. So you can look that up. You can buy either of those and they can help you walk through day by day the Psalms. Highly recommend that. Highly recommend that. So here we go. Let's read Psalm 1. Ready? Blessed is the man Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. And I want to help us to understand what is being said here. This is a proverb about living. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who does what? Well, interestingly, he starts with negations. And sometimes it's okay to live that way. We want to be known as a church and as a people for what we do, not for what we don't do. But it's important to realize that we also have to know what not to do. So what 
must we not do if we want to be the blessed man or woman? Well, we must not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Who do you go to for advice? Who do you go to when you have a big decision to make? Who are you looking to for answers? Now, this could be explicitly or implicitly. If you don't have people who you explicitly go to in big decisions, then you're probably seeking your counsel from the wicked because you're just taking in whatever the world is giving. What else should you not do? Well, you shouldn't stand in the way of sinners. This is an escalation. It's not just seeking advice from those who do not know God. It's also making actual decisions that are not in line with God's law. And the third says this, do not sit in the seat of scoffers. I think this is referencing habitual lifestyle decisions. You see the escalation of defiance? It starts by just seeking out counsel. It moves to standing with and walking with those who are making wrong decisions. And then it moves to you actually sit down. You actually plant yourself in that company. Now, this doesn't mean that if you're a person of God that you do not have many a friend, that you're not part of communities like this. But I think a good rule of thumb would be to ask yourself, are you spending as much time with those communities as you are with the community of God? You see that escalation of defiance? Calvin said this, he said, how men are wont to turn aside little by little from the right way. Usually, it's slow, small drift, and you don't even realize it. You don't even realize how far from the stream you've gone. But there's another way. And the psalm will tell us this is the way of the blessed man or woman. And look what he says. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That is the way of the godly man or woman. Now, let me explain really quickly the next analogy. He talks about two kinds of people, those who are like a tree and those who are like chaff. Chaff was the husk around the actual grain. And after the grain was cut, the chaff would die off. And the, re the way that you would separate the chaff from the actual grain was you would take a pitchfork, you'd throw it up in the air, and usually you, you, the threshing floor, they would call it, was usually on a place that was elevated and kind of windy, you throw it up in the air, and because the grain was actually heavier than the chaff, the chaff would be blown away by the wind, and the grain would remain and fall to the ground. This is the way they would separate the grain from the chaff. And what he's saying is, people who seek only the counsel of the non-godly, who walk in the way of sinners, who sit at the seat of scoffers, those people are like chaff. They will eventually be blown away by the winds of the world. 
whether that's the culture, whether that's the cynicism of the world. They will be blown away. Eventually, some force of nature will come and blow them away. But there's another kind of person, a tree person. This is great, right? This is a great sermon to preach in Seattle. You should be a tree person. This is great. This will preach on any corner in Seattle. I'm a tree person. Have a great conversation with me. Let me tell you about trees. This is what tree people do. They plant themselves next to a stream. They plant themselves as close as possible to a stream. Why do they do that? Well, here's how a tree works. Even when there's a drought, even when nothing is falling upon them from the outside, you know what a tree does? It still remains nourished because it's not actually getting its nourishment from the rain that is falling. It is drawing it up from the ground. And the closer you are to a stream, the more access you have to water. When we plant ourselves next to the waters, which is God's law, God's way, God's word, what happens is that we are never without that which we need to live. Never. In fact, this is what's so interesting. Do you know what happens in a drought to trees and other plants? Actually, when there's a drought, the tree grows stronger because its roots actually have to go further into the ground to find water. And so even in the toughest droughts of life, those who have chosen to plant themselves next to God's word will find that they are actually growing stronger and not weaker. Stronger through the trial, not weaker because of the trial. You see how different that is? Do you see how weather has a totally different relationship to the tree versus the chaff? Because whatever's happening around the tree, no matter how big the windstorm, no matter how little rain, nothing is going to blow it over because it has set its roots deep. It's so different than the chaff. So the winds of culture, the trends, the new ideas, the new philosophies, it's not that they don't affect the tree, it's that they just don't knock over the tree. I want to be somebody unaffected by the weather. I want to be somebody that can make it through any storm. I told a friend, you'd know him, I'm not even going to use his name. I told a friend who was about to go through a storm, I knew he was going to go through a storm. I told him, I'm going to put my money on you. In 10 years, I'm going to come to you for advice because I know that what you're about to go through, if you choose to stay planted 
near the stream, you will be the strongest man that I know. I'm buying your stock right now because I know the way that God works, that this drought, this challenge is just going to make you stronger if you choose to walk with the Lord by your side. These streams of water, as I said, they are the law of the Lord. And the law of the Lord includes both the Torah, which is the five books of the, the Old Testament, which the Hebrew people would call the Torah, the Tanakh. It also, I think, includes the Psalms. And then for us who are Christians, I believe it includes all of Scripture. So to walk in the law of the Lord, to plant yourself near the streams of living water, which is God's word, will be the only thing that will keep you alive. It's the only thing. There's no other way. There might be other ways that seem like they might be better or seem like they work, but at some point, Weather will come that will prove otherwise. That will rip you out of the ground. That will knock you over. And you'll be blown away. The only thing is the law of the Lord. And and here's what's important. Every single law of the Lord is good. All of them. You don't get to cherry pick. Every single one of them. Because it's the Lord that gives them. And the Lord does not make a mistake. If he has given us his law, then we know it is good. But you say, Pastor Dave, it doesn't always feel good in the moment. It doesn't always seem right. It might actually sting a bit. It might actually hurt to live this way. How could that be God's good plan? Well, this is where faith comes in. Let me give you an illustration. Is anybody in here like me who hates getting shots? Medical shots. Not taking shots, medical shots. <laughs> I know you, I see you, okay. I hate getting shots. I don't like people sticking needles in my veins. I'm a very sensitive guy, very sensitive. I remember as a kid I used to get Shots. I still remember getting tetanus shots, sitting there, and, and after I got the shot, I couldn't stop laughing. I just laughed uncontrollably for like 30 minutes. My mother is here tonight. She can attest. I, I get so wigged out by shots. Now, some of the laws of the Lord feel like getting a shot, getting stuck with a needle. We're talking, sometimes it feels like a real big needle. And in the moment, we don't like how it feels. In the moment, we think, how could this be God's best plan? Why couldn't he give me a pill to swallow? Why does why it have to be a shot? I, never, I still don't understand that. If you're a doctor in the house, explain to me why everything can't be ingested. Okay. But in fact, even if we think it's going to kill us, which I did as a kid, mom, they're going to kill me. They're sticking a needle into my vein. I'm very, I'm very bleedable. Even if we think it's going to kill us, what we realize after the fact is that it's for our good. That actually, 
I'm not just getting stuck with a needle, but actually there's something in that syringe which is good for me, which actually brings me more life. And sometimes I'm so dull, or maybe I was so young, I could not see how getting a shot was better than not getting a shot. Because I didn't understand that the thing being put into me was actually there to save my life, to protect me, or to even reverse a bad that had already happened. I want you to meditate on that, that idea. Does the law of the Lord feel like that to you? Like it's just unnecessary? L let me tell you something. If you live by this wisdom, that once I hit rock bottom, then I'll figure it out. Or once they hit rock bottom, they'll figure it out. Or trial by fire. If that's your way of living, it might work. You might bounce back. You might learn your lesson. But you know what? There is many people who have been killed by fire. Many people who don't get back up. And you know what we should do instead? Plant ourselves next to the stream of living water, the word of God, the law of the Lord, and trust him that he is guiding us in the right direction. It is not holier to figure that out firsthand. The right thing to do is to live and to walk by faith. That is the way of God's people. Now, if you have hit rock bottom, if you have learned by fire, by all means, share your experience with people so that they don't feel like they have to figure it out on their own. Now, it turns out God was right. Turns out that was actually the better way. One day we will know the full extent of God's goodness. One day we will look back and we will see that at every single turn, God's law was the right turned. Sometimes we followed it, sometimes we didn't. One day we will know that he was right. But until then, what are you going to do? I suggest that you trust the Lord God Almighty. That you walk according to his law. That is the wise thing to do. That's how he guides us. That's how he moves us towards his good ends. Now look at this word delight. Look at this word delight. This is so important to understand. When I say all this, when I say just trust God, just obey him, some of you might be thinking, that seems so cold. It seems just kind of begrudging, obedience. I don't, I don't want to live that kind of life. That's not the life you're called to live. You're called to live a life of delight. And this is why it's delightful to trust in the ways of God. This is why it is delightful, because it's like trusting a good father. And sometimes there's just joy in doing what your father said, because you know that he loves you. Have you ever had that experience? Maybe, maybe it's not a father for you. Maybe it's a mother for you. Maybe it's a good friend. And you said, you know what? I can't see it. I don't understand it. But you know what? I am going to delight and just trusting you. Oh, what a great blessing it is to have somebody in your life that you can just trust. 
That's why it's delightful. I'll give you another illustration here. Sometimes I like to let Allie give directions when we're headed to a new place we've never been. Sometimes. I love my wife. We're communicating without language right now, just this kind of relationship we have. But sometimes we use language, and sometimes I let her pick the directions that we go. And I actually, she's, she might think I'm lying, but I actually, often when I do this, it is for my delight. It is for my delight. There is just something about it for me that I love to let her choose the way that we go. It, it, and you know what? It doesn't always work out for the best. Not always. But that's not the point. The point is that I delight in allowing her to guide the car. Now, this is a great thing about delighting in the law of the Lord. He's never going to get it wrong. But there is something delightful about just giving up control. Have you experienced this? Have you experienced the delight of that? Of not having to make every decision on your own? I mean, we think in this country in particular that having every possible choice is somehow the most delightful thing. If you've ever had real variety of choice, you realize it is terrible, right? Like we pretend like having the whole buffet is a great idea. I never feel good after going to the buffet. It's not, I mean, both ate too much, but also just the anxiety of what am I gonna eat? What if I get it wrong? Or let me tell you about this, like when I went to college, I had a lot of choices, a pretty good GPA, very good test taker, <laughs> figured it out. Had a good GPA. Finances weren't an issue for me, fortunately. I had a lot, of, a lot of choices. And it almost killed me. Having to choose, where do I go? What state do I go to? What school, do I go to a big school, do I go to a small school? Do I go play basketball somewhere? Do I go someplace? Because I like the, the city. I, it, 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 it tore me up inside. And you know what's interesting? It hasn't stopped tearing me up inside. I still think back that I make the right decision. Go dogs. You dumb. Probably did, but I still wonder what would life have been like? Why am I doing that? Because I had choice. I don't think choice is some amazing thing. Now imagine if God took that anxiety from me. Now we won't take it in everything, you still have to make some choices, but what if I just trusted that he is leading me in the right direction, and I delight in that. You see, you see what I'm saying here? You see how it's delightful to not have to decide how am I gonna do sexuality? I'm not gonna decide how am I gonna do morality? I'm not gonna have to decide who I give my life to, who I worship. I mean, there are so many things that if we just follow the law of the Lord, it's just delightful. I don't have to figure all that out on my own. So I delight in trusting the Father. I delight in letting Him take the lead. I delight 
in having many of my choices made for me because I trust that he has my good in mind. Even if I can't see it right now. That's what it means to delight in the law of the Lord. Okay. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. So what will it look like to overcome the weather of this world, the winds of this world, the droughts of this world by being close to the stream? The word he uses is everything will prosper. Now here's what he doesn't mean. This isn't a health and wealth situation. This isn't a name it and claim it. That's not, not what's happening here. Everything will prosper. And look what he says. Our tree will yield fruit in its season. Here's what that means. Not every season of your life will be fruit everywhere. There will be seasons that are harder than others. But at the end of the day, you will live a prosperous life if you trust God, plant yourself near the stream of his word, and live it out to the end. You will look back and say, I had a prosperous life in its proper season, according to God's plan. I was thinking of trees this week, like I've said, and in this book I have, there's a picture of the same tree in each season. Fall, winter, spring, summer. And I was thinking, man, that is a great picture of the Christian life. Because in, in, in one picture, the spring, right, is when life is coming into the tree. And then through the summer, you, you live upon the abundance of, of that, right? And then comes the fall. And for a leafy tree, what happens? All that you have absorbed, all that life that has come upon you and helped you through the summer, you know what you do in the fall? Those leaves become like flowers. But they don't remain. They fall on all that is near it. That's the Christian life. That if we're filled up with the living water of God, we will eventually bear fruit, bear flowers that then fall upon the city, our neighborhoods, our friends. And then you know what we do in the winter? We rest. It's okay to rest as a Christian. You rest. You wait the winter out. There are seasons of rest. But yet you're still absorbing. You're still storing up for yourself the living waters of God. And then the cycle happens again. You begin to bloom. And you live life. And then eventually you dump your leaves on the world. And it's beautiful. This is what happens. This is the blessed life. This is the life of the follower of Christ. Now, that's an important word, Christ. Because the greatest tree that ever lived was Jesus himself. If you read the life of Jesus, you see that he himself was being filled up by the Psalms. He was being filled up by the law of the Lord. He was meditating on it. He was allowing it to become a part of him. He was absorbing it into himself. He would go away at times just to be him and the Father. 
He was filling himself up. And then he came to the end of his life. And this is so fascinating. He gave away his life, right? And how did he do that? He gave away his life by being nailed to two trees. So the crosses. It's two trees uprooted, attached together, and Jesus hangs there. And some in his day thought this, and you might think this yourself. You see what a life being planted by the stream gets you? It gets you hung on a cross. How ironic is that? That Jesus, more than anyone, gave his life to the law of the Lord and it got him nailed to a cross. He is literally hanging from a tree. Maybe it's all a lie. Maybe it's not true. Maybe God's law isn't worth it. Maybe he's leading us down a path to destruction. I mean, think about this. The very last thing that happens to Jesus is they take a spear and they penetrate his side. And you know what happens? All the water rushes out of his body. He's literally drained dry. Might feel like that's what's going to happen to you if you follow the law of the Lord. It's going to drain dry. But an interesting thing happened right before Jesus died. That in a moment of great anguish and torment and pain, he spoke a few words. Do you know where those words came from? The Psalms. Psalm 22, to be specific. It's like they bubbled out of him because he was so absorbed in them. The words of Psalm 22 came from his mouth, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, maybe this is an indication of a failed life. Certainly Jesus was experiencing real separation from God, a kind that we could never imagine because he, being God himself, had never been separated from the Father. So it's real. The torment is real. But actually, I think there's something bigger happening here. I think when he references the first line of Psalm 22, he's actually invoking the entire psalm. Like if you were to sing a line of your favorite psalm, you're invoking the whole psalm. That's what Jesus is doing. In his moment of real anguish, he cries out to God, both in anguish and in faith. Because let me read for you what the rest of Psalm 22 says. It starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groan? See how raw and real that is for the moment Jesus is in? Then verse 24 says this, as it begins to come back. For he has not 
despised or abhorred the afflictions of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. And listen here, the very last line. That he has done it. That's what Jesus is invoking when he cries out. The psalm of suffering and victory. And God did do that on that day. By death, by the death of God the Son, Jesus Christ himself, God created the bridge back to the living water. On the third day, then God proved that Jesus' faith in the Father's character, in the Father's promises, in the Father's law, in the Father's plans, in the Father's way, in the Father's sovereignty, were not met with silence. But God spoke again and said, rise up, my son. And Jesus rose. And he vindicated every doubt that he was the Savior of the world. He is the great tree of salvation. When you feel like you're going to fall, you lean on him. Whoever sits rooted next to Jesus sits rooted in God because Jesus right now is sitting next to God the Father. He's at his right hand, planted near the stream of all life. And so if we choose to plant ourselves near Jesus, we are planting ourselves near the giving water of life. If we choose to plant ourselves next to Jesus, we enter this grand orchard of life eternal, of life with God, and we will never be blown over. Would you pray with me?